best episode of my podcast, Tech, Future and World. The podcast where basically an average Joe being myself is gonna try and do my best to research a subject about something going on in the world and we're gonna hopefully, or being me and hopefully use the audience, come to sort of a conclusion on what we think about it and how it fits into our world and whether it should be there. Um, so as I said, this is episode one. What subjects are we looking at today? Well, as the new Jurassic World domination film is coming out, uh, bear with me here because I know some of you are going to be thinking this is a film podcast now. It's not, honestly. But the subject I'm thinking of looking at is something called uh, Pleistocene Park. And I'm thinking of this just because the new Jurassic World Domination film is coming out in the 10th of June. It's quite close to when I'm recording this. And yeah, we're going to have a look at that and explain what it is. So please join me or stay with me for this episode as we look into that. So as I said at the beginning, I am not an expert in any of the subjects that I'm going to be looking at during this podcast and however long it runs um, and it's really stuff that interests me that's why I'm having a look at it so I was thinking the new Jurassic World film was coming out as I said it's always something I've been really enjoyed I've always enjoyed the very first film that came out in uh, 1993 I mean it's almost as old as me um, that was initially based on the book Jurassic World and yeah, like, I think Placing World is going to be something not similar. To say it's similar is wrong, but it is something that we can probably draw parallels against. So I think before we go into actually what Placing World is, we'll just quickly discuss basically Jurassic World for anyone who's not actually familiar with it, just for two minutes. So just very quickly, it's basically about a billionaire who opens up a park filled with dinosaurs. They basically get the DNA of these dinosaurs from um, fossilized um, intact mosquitoes and they extract the DNA from the blood the mosquitoes have sucked out of those dinosaurs. They then breed and genetically engineer those dinosaurs on the park to basically be as a theme park or an attraction for people to come and look at. Before the park can open they have to get uh, people to come in uh, to make the shareholders happy to confirm the park will be viable. It's not uh, It's not going to cause any issues. At that point, obviously, everything goes wrong pretty much and dinosaurs escape and it's, it's basically a massive disaster. But, the, but one of the biggest things about the film is that they're trying to replicate a period of time being the Jurassic period, or the period during the dinosaurs, not necessarily Jurassic period, but the time during the dinosaurs, and that's pretty much, the rest of the films just go off on a, rest, on a tangent in terms of about dinosaurs and that, but it's that idea of replicating a period in time which we're going to be visiting today, and that's what Pleistocene Park will be, it's replicating a period of time um, mainly associated with the Great Ice Age, and so that's why I'm interested in it. This film sort of prompted me to go and have a look, go away and see what is there out there. A bit like Jurassic Park. And to be fair, this is what I found. I found this park called Pleistocene Park. And let's let's have a little bit of a look into that in more detail now. So... Before I keep chucking out that word, uh, Pleistocene, I think it's really important that we maybe get a little bit more context of what actually the Pleistocene is uh, and that. So I've discussed why I was interested in this subject, but now let's have a very quick look at what is the difference between Pleistocene, for example, to the Ju to Jurassic. So. The Jurassic period of time was a period of time which the dinosaurs were around. Now, the film takes this very loosely to just call it Jurassic Park, but the Jurassic period was actually only one of three different time periods of which dinosaurs existed on, on our planet. Uh, the first uh, was uh, the Triassic. That was followed by the Jurassic. And then the last 
uh, time period the dinosaurs were uh, alive in was the Cretaceous. Um, and, and these were basically just periods of time during the planet that 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 sort of signified different sort of eras of the planet like different vegetation different like where the continents were and obviously the creatures that were alive in it um just to sort of give you an idea the jurassic uh period of time was about 199 um to 145 million years ago so it's a really long time ago now the difference we have here is the um, with the what we're going to be discussing today, so the uh, Pleistocene uh, period of time is much more recent, much, much more recent. In fact, it is really the last great ice age. That is what that time period was called. And it actually only goes back to about 100, or, well, one, sorry, not 100, 1.8 million years ago, uh, give or take. Some some studies believe that actually it goes back slightly further ago that um, that started, but that's based on um, research and finding glaciers uh, in other areas of the world that may have been around even later than that. That period of time went on all the way up to about 11,000 years ago, um, 11 to 12,000 years ago that a uh, great ice age ended um, and that was the end of the um, Pleistocene period so when I'm referring to that it is basically the ice age we're talking about it's that period of time we are talking about and this park is basically going to be trying to replicate um, the environment that was around during that time period and They've obviously got their reasons for doing so, and uh, and that's what we're looking at. We're going to be looking at that today. So, where is this park? I think that's the first thing to discuss, is where it is in the history of it. Uh, unlike Jurassic Park, which was based on an island off of the coast of Costa Rica, uh, Pleistocene Park is actually in the far eastern corner of Russia. Um, it's not a massive place, it's only made up of about 2,000 hectares to date, um, but that is not the whole park, that is how much they've cordoned off for it, um, and I'm sure that is going to expand more as the development of the park increases. So, how did it all start? Where did this start? Like, what? who decided to do this? Well, it all started with someone called Sergio uh, Zimov. They were conducting experiments on animal reintroduction back in uh, 1988. Um, the idea was he was going to introduce uh, Yakutan horses back into a isolated uh, area uh, near their research camp and and that was near the uh, uh, Kolyoma River lowlands and the reason they were doing it is they, they wanted to sort of see the effect that bringing grasslands would have back on Finland for climate and the reintroducing of animals uh, to these arctic areas. Now they hit a stumbling block really quite early on right near the beginning and that was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Before that, they had their funding agreed and they were going to get all this funding from the Soviet Union. That, that's how they're going to do their research. And around that time, that's when the Soviet Union collapsed. So as soon as that happened, they actually lost all that funding. They had no funding and the horses that were going to be given to them um, got given away to farmers for life uh, to run their farms and livestock so it put a massive halt on their project for a while in fact they didn't really get on to any further development until the, until 1996 where they actually got the official status and company name of place to scene park at that point because they were an official registered company the russian government gave them 144 square kilometers of land for this experiment that they were running 
Now, just because they're given all of that land doesn't mean that they were at a point where they're able to use it. But remember, they hadn't been able to get anywhere because they lost all their funding before. So to begin with, it, they've actually started off with just a small 50 hectare fence to enclose an area for them to introduce animals and see what happened. So some of the animals they introduced were uh, the horses again, they had moose and they had reindeer as they were animals that they were easily able to uh, find locally and and uh, are, are sort of used to that environment and habitat. So they were the first ones that were introduced. Following this, about 10 or 9, 10 years later, so in around 2005, 2006, the project had then grown and they then increased that fence from 50 hectares to 2,000 hectares. Now, obviously, that's a massive increase, and obviously, they thought that they, they were getting much, like, they're ready to expand um, with this experiment. So, uh, starting in 2010, um, they, um, the, the East Science Station on the site uh, grew big enough to be able to uh, fund the transport of much bigger animals and much more variety of animals to introduce to this this region this region this 2,000 hectares that they had now cordoned off. So, since then they have introduced further stuff like ox and uh, bison and um, uh, yaks. Uh, wild cattle uh, and uh, even sheep into that region um, and it, the, they plan on just continually growing what can go in there. Now that leads us on to the more recent developments within the park which happened in around 2012-2016 and that is at that base camp they not only started thinking about obviously the introduction of animals but actually the measurement of the permafrost there and that's and, and the effect on the climate change so the step they took at that point was they actually made a permafrost tunnel um the uh, total overall length of it roughly being about 200 meters and the idea of this tunnel was one it would act as storage for the park um it would be storage all year round and also it would be a visual example of permafrost uh, degradation um, within the park and that's one of the things that the park is really um, looking into and something we'll discuss a little bit later. Now since the creation of that permafrost tunnel back in uh, 2016 or 2012-2016 there haven't been as many big developments. Um, what they've been looking at is more of the uh, data and the research uh, over that 20 years of the park really properly running from that 20, from that 50 to 2,000 hectares. And what they've basically found is with that introduction of the animals, there's been a noticeable effect on the vegetation within the fenced off area. In fact, grasses are now the dominant vegetation in many of the locations within that fenced off area. What that means is the carbon storage in the soil is slowly increasing and rates of uh, nutrient turnover are accelerating. Um, now, this is obviously only quite new. 20 years is a very short amount of time to really be measuring this. But the fact that already seeing increased carbon storage in the soil is quite a positive impact. And it's something we are going to discuss a little bit further along in the podcast. And another thing, like the fact that the park is that young, the park has, and the scientists and the people who run it have fully admit and say it is too early. It's too early to really confirm whether this high productive grazing ecosystem is the reason why there is more carbon storage now in the soil, in these grasslands. But it is a positive uh, and looking positive for their research and going in that right direction. Um the park has 
advised that they have future plans for park development, including a much bigger herd of musk ox. Um, additionally, they have plans to increase the fenced off area to encompass the full area of the uh, of the land uh, Pleistocene Park owns, which if you remember we were saying at the beginning of the past podcast was about 144 square kilometers so a massive area and something which would give them so much more data if they could get that scale of project up or research up so we've discussed a bit of history about the park but what we haven't really discussed yet is still why are they really doing it we I, i've maybe chucked it in here and there but what is the real reason and what is the purpose of this park is it like jurassic park or is it there for tourism is it there to make money well the researchers advise the reason why they're doing it is to see if they can bring grasslands back to the arctic regions of russia now why are they doing that well, one of the things that they're researching is, could it be a much better carbon storage solution? Could it help climate change? And as we know, climate change is such a big issue nowadays. Anything that we can do to research it really does help. And anything we can do to drastically improve it, or even just a little bit, will help us in the long term. So, that is the main reason that they are doing this experiments and that's why they've introduced these animals back into this area to create grasslands and that's what we're going to have a little look at now so how does introducing these animals encourage this grassland back so back in the pleistocene time period when we had the uh, the the the, oh my goodness i'm so sorry the great ice age during that period of time we had an awful lot of large herbivores so we had the mammoths we had the willy rhinos we had the horses we had the bison we had wild cattle um all sorts of like large reindeer um, or other uh, antelope type creatures and these created a lot of grassland and the reason for that is these big animals trampled the new forest growth this forest growth didn't have time to grow it was trampled down they would then feed up the grassland and it would encourage more grass growth because these big plants never had time to grow now you may be thinking why why is it not grassland now why is it all this forested area well <laughs> The simple answer generally of that is is as the ice age was coming to an end, obviously climate change was cha the climate was changing again, so it wasn't suitable for a lot of the species that lived there. But also a big contributing factor is our ancestors. Obviously, at that point we had discovered uh, we had discovered fire, we had discovered um, the use of tools, and we were using these to devastating effect for hunting a lot of these large herbivores. Um, literally hunting them to the point of extinction. The issue is, is once you take out all of these large herbivores from these grasslands, suddenly there's not the large animals there to trample down that tree growth, to trample down and encourage the grass growth. So what happens is shrubs come in, other mosses come in, slow growing mosses which take over from the grass, trees start to sprout up and the more trees that come up the less grass there is and it just creates a cycle. In fact often if for instance we were to have an area nowadays a lot of of the uh, land where you look around your homes is probably surrounded by farmland but if you left it long enough that farmland would revert back to forests, would refer, revert back to wooded areas. And it, it's really back down to these big herbivores to actually trample and keep it out of that state. So because they became extinct, because they died off, the grasslands effectively died off as well. And we got forests instead. Now, these forests, it's under like the scientific community like there's a lot of obviously debate going into this and there's a lot more research that needs to be looked at 
but often aren't believed to have hold as much carbon as actually a lot of these forested areas. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about, for example, the Amazon rainforest, which is a real carbon sink and that. These are areas, obviously, in um, um, the Arctic and that where it, the, these there, there isn't a lot of other like carbon like um, storage there. These trees are. Um, not storing necessarily as much or not as beneficial in those areas as for example grassland would be and so let's have a little look at that now and actually why they're now introducing these these uh these animals um the, the animals that are being introduced are literally a huge variety as long as they're pretty much a large herbivore they are being introduced so we've even got some camels that are being introduced um we've got goats we've got cows uh we have moose we have ox bison um reindeer sheep um um uh literally like buffalo um like other like different types of horses and yaks they're all being introduced because they are much bigger and they are starting to create this grazing land um and in the next part of the uh the podcast we will talk about actually why their research is showing this will be good for climate change but this is the reason why they're adding these animals in and it is also one of the reasons where we come back to a slight side note but also taking us back to sort of that jurassic park sort of theme of this episode like could they reintroduce willy mammoths and willy rhinos in the future and let's have a little talk about that now before we really get into sort of that nitty-gritty of the uh um the climate and the benefit that it could do for that so this is the bit this is the bit which probably more closely links to the Jurassic Park side of things than anything else. Obviously, it's a park that is designed and is based on an area or a time period of history, ancient history, way beyond our ancestors. Um, and it's based on a time period where it's it's trying to bring back nature to what it was effectively that's what the film Jurassic Park was trying to do in terms of with the dinosaurs the main difference is is um, th this park hasn't really said that the aim is to bring back obviously mammoths for example or woolly rhinos but that doesn't mean Plasticine Park haven't said they wouldn't and obviously Jurassic Park the whole idea is they get the DNA and they breed these dinosaurs and reintroduce them into this island it's not something they haven't said is beyond the realms of possibility with mammoths woolly rhinos or other um ancient animals especially with for example the woolly mammoths the woolly mammoths in terms of time scale really didn't die off that long ago it's really been quite recent like in the past 11 12,000 years and especially the environments these mammoths often lived they lived in cold climates which meant even when those animals died they actually often were preserved their bodies were preserved so well and it's really common for people in Siberia to still not really common but more common than it would be to find for instance a dinosaur bone to come across or stumble across a frozen mammoth remain which still has flesh and fur intact on the uh, on the specimen now obviously having intact hair and flesh isn't perfect isn't what you really need what you really need to create or bring an animal back from the dead would be perfectly intact dna Without the perfectly intact DNA, they're not going to have enough genetic data for that animal to produce it. In a lab or any other scenario, they're not going to have enough to produce it. And that is one of the biggest things which is sort of blocking this idea. Plenty of people have said that the possibility of extracting that DNA from the frozen cells of a mammoth could 
mean that they could create a clone of that animal, a bit like what happened with Dolly the sheep when they created the, uh, the, the clone of that sheep. They could create a clone of the mammoth, and that could even be um, uh, implanted as an embryo in an elephant and raised and born that way, uh, or even in a fake uh, synthetic womb in the lab, for example. However, frozen cells, we always think frozen stuff is perfectly preserved. We can, we put stuff, we put our food in the freezer, we can thaw it out and cook it later, and it's pretty much like perfectly edible. However, damage is still done to the cells during this process. The one, the decay from cosmic uh, rays, we also have the, just the deterioration after the breakdown of, um, uh, after death of the of the body rotting, and also like bacterial uh, breakdown, and that happens almost immediately after death. So even after death, it is a race against time of that cell becoming preserved. Even if then we say, well, okay. What if it freezes instantly? That's why the animal died. It froze instantly. There's no chance for bacteria. There's no chance for any sort of decay or anything like that. The whole freezing process is an incredibly sort of like destructive process with the ice crystals being formed in the body. That's going to rip apart muscle. It's going to rip apart the body and potentially there actually damage the DNA itself as well. And, and even when it's frozen, there's still deterioration. Although it seems very much intact, they haven't found a specimen to date intact enough to clone to create that mammoth. And scientists have said that the chances of finding one intact enough to actually clone and, and reintroduce back into the park is very unlikely. And so as much as it is almost like a bit of a a fantasy and and sort of it'd be you think it'd be cool to actually see mammoths or woolly mammoths or even woolly rhinos sorry or other species brought back from the past in all likelihood it's unlikely that you it's going to be seen it is likely to be a fairy tale um but it is something that we can always imagine seeing and it'd be really interesting to see if they do find that that specimen intact enough wow it, we, it, it would be quite a sight to see a mammoth. Um, let's come back to that maybe back at the end and we'll sort of include it in our sort of conclusion like what would you do if you saw a mammoth? Um, and would you be excited? Do you think it would be wrong for example uh, to bring one back? So yeah before we get bogged down with too much more of this let's go back to sort of the main reasons the park says it is running and what are pretty much their goals what they're trying to get from it um, and that's really to do with the whole climate change side of things uh, and making the world sort of better in terms of stopping those greenhouse gases so let's go back and have a little look into that area of things so what have we discussed? We've discussed, obviously, the connections between Pleistocene Park and Jurassic Park, sort of similarities there. We've discussed the history of Pleistocene Park, why it, how it started off and its sort of journey. Um, we've discussed sort of what the aim of the park is. The aim is to obviously introduce more grasslands uh, um, to, to the uh, Arctic. And finally, we've discussed what um, mammoths or uh, what, what if you could bring back mammoths or other uh, extinct um, large herbivores. But now it's probably time to really come down to why are they doing this? Like we've discussed it so far in terms of where they've been, what they could do, but why are they doing it? Why are they trying to introduce the grassland? And this is all stuff, for instance, you could find on their website. So I would strongly encourage you to go away, have a look at this for yourself, do your own research, because it is really interesting uh, to see what is going out there in the world. But effectively, their vision, the idea of Pleistocene Park, is to reverse the ecosystem shift, which has occurred over the past 10,000 years. Um, with the decline of animal uh, density in those areas has allowed for the increased growth of obviously uh, forests, um, uh, which has 
meant like grasslands have vanished out. Um, but their whole aim is to reintroduce these large herbivores, which will encourage the growth and the establishment of new grasslands, which in turn will allow the revival of sustainable, high productive ecosystems similar to what you would get in, for instance, the Northern Serengeti. So what is the difference between the, Seren the Northern Serengeti, for example, and the Arctic ecosystem? Well, the main difference obviously is, is in the Arctic, it's very cold. The, it's so cold that it means that the ecosystems and the rate of the biological systems are much, much slower. Um, in fact, the uh, decomposition of the organic matter is so much slower in these systems that the nutrients used for plant growth are often stuck in like dead litter. So plant like leaves that come down from the trees for a very, very long time before they then become available again for new plant growth, new productivity in that ecosystem. Now, the difference being in grazing ecosystems with grassland for example the decomposition of organic material mainly happens in the stomach of herbivores it gets eaten before it even has a chance to to hit the ground and the nutrients are quickly returned back to the ecosystem by the animals um, this allows the grazing ecosystems to produce much much higher harvests and maintain a much higher density of animals compared to something for instance in the arctic where the like density of animals in that area can be very sparse so by reintroducing these large herbivores as you would get for instance in the serengeti these animals will start trampling down these trees creating more space for uh, uh, grasslands to grow and grazing which will start increasing the speed of the ecosystem, the biological system in the Arctic will speed up. More nutrients will get um, um, processed much faster and returned back to the ground, allowing then the growth to speed up and then for more animals to be uh, maintained there. So first set of animals will come, eat it, it will get back into the environment, but because it's being introduced back into the environment faster, that grassland grows faster, which then can um, sustain more animals, even more animals eat that um, that energy up from the grassland even faster because there's more of them. That gets introduced back again, but then there's even more being introduced back, which allows even more plant growth. And it just is a cycle that goes on and on and on. And that's why grasslands are often so, so rich in, in biodiversity and animal life. And it's, and it's these... Uh, grasslands that they believe can actually assist in the cooling of the planet they can provide cooling effects on the climate and so let's go into that in a little bit more detail uh, now so first of all what we're going to be looking at well one of the big things in the arctic is permafrost carbon reserves so the permafrost is uh, holds these carbon reserves frozen uh, in the Arctic currently at the moment and as climate change is increasing this is uh, getting warmer it's like five degrees above freezing and this is basically encouraging um, bac bacterial um, or microbes um, uh, in this permafrost um, like waking up and they are quickly converting this formerly frozen organic material into greenhouse gases and that is being released into the air and there is a lot of permafrost in the Arctic. In fact to give you an idea on how much permafrost there is it's about 24% of the land in the northern hemisphere has permafrost underneath it and a lot of this permafrost hasn't even thawed out yet. This is so the issue with climate change that we have is the temperature is going up dramatically as it is. It's going up fast. And the main part of the permafrost hasn't even really started fully melting yet. In fact, it's around a three degree Celsius increase in global temperatures could melt about 30 to 85 percent of the top permafrost. And you think how much climate change has gone up already 
that is a massive increase which is going to again snowball it that temperature is increasing which will then melt the permafrost which will then add more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere which will then heat up the planet even more and so that is one of the really big main things that they are looking here they are trying to measure the effects of that melting that degrading of that permafrost and how much impact it's going to have that moves on to the second point of one of the things that they are looking at in this park so this is going to maybe be a bit weird because i didn't actually know this as much myself so the snow almost acts as an insulating air like blanket over top of the permafrost so the snow on top isn't actually necessarily cooling down the permafrost is actually keeping it warm so that permafrost is giving off that gas and not allowing the air temperature the cold air temperature to freeze that permafrost again to keep it cold so it's actually helping it keep warmer as an insulating layer now with the reintroduction of these large herbivores that would actually counter that because these large grazing grazing animals on these large eco like grazing ecosystems would be looking for foliage to eat in the snow they'd be uh, eating up that grass um, and in the process as a byproduct would be trampling down that snow now that's very different that snow becomes impacted it becomes a lot more icy and it destroys that heat insulated layer that was protecting the permafrost originally this allows for a deeper freezing of the permafrost and thus it protects it from any further degradation and doesn't let any more greenhouse gases out. Now that's all we've got on the permafrost but that's not the only, that's not the only thing that the park is looking at of what could benefit from um, from this grassland being it and it is to still do climate change but it's not the only thing that could help the um the the stopping of climate change and the heating up of the planet one of the other things they're looking at is is the carbon in the air like the car like the carbon storage so unlike a lot of modern vegetation grasses form a very deep root system a deep root system that is spread quite far and wide and this is essentially the process of absorbing co2 from the atmosphere um, and storing it in forms of roots in cold arctic weather so like these massive grasslands will take in the carbon from the air store it in the root system and it will be then held there in the grass system it will be held there in the root system in the cold soil now on a small scale for instance like the 50 hectares it's not going to make a big big difference but if you think about it like that arctic area of russia is huge it is it is a massive area and what is another massive area which is a carbon basin uh, and a carbon storage the amazon so if you had an area for instance of this massive grassland similar size think of the carbon storage that it could hold in that network of roots and that the more there is the more efficient it would be at doing it the better it would be on a small scale you're probably not going to see that much but on a large scale it could be used as a as a as a mechanism to help absorb greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and help keep our planet cooler a way of store storing that carbon um and if you compare that for instance to like um, the few tree stems you'll have in the Arctic, it is a much better way of doing it um, than um, than there currently is there now. Um, again, though, that isn't the only thing which is helping the climate change um, argument with this park. Uh, another thing that they are looking at, which they actually say could potentially help, is what is called as the al uh, al Bird, the Alberto effect um, and what that effectively is is woodland is quite dark it's, it's a lot darker uh, same with shrublands um, that's because obviously the grasslands are formed so there's a lot more mud the trees tend to be darker themselves uh, in general 
but grasslands are quite light. They they aren't normally uh, dark in light. They're not normally those dark greens. Now they're normally a much lighter color. Now this helps in two ways. Much like you have a, a dark colored car or a light colored car, your light colored car is going to be much better at reflecting that sunlight in the summer, therefore keeping the inside of the car cool. The darker car is going to be absorbing that heat a lot more, absorbing those sun rays from, from, from our sun and warming up the inside of that car. It is a very similar effect here. The grassland is much lighter, so it reflects that sun light and reflects a lot more of that light back up into space. Now again, on a small scale, might not be so noticeable, but on a massive scale, the amount of uh, sun heat that is reflected back into space would be substantial and would affect our warming of the planet. It could lower it. As well as that, because there is a lot more flatter ground, in the winter there would be much more snow coverage. Due to that snow coverage, obviously it's that light or it's that much lighter, it's that white colour which is going to reflect the sun. The sun is going to hit that snow and it is going to reflect that heat back up into space and that will help keep the planet cooler. So during the um, during the winter months when there isn't as much sunlight but there is a lot more snow, it's going to help reflect that sun away. In the summer where it's parts of the Arctic you often have very long hours of sunlight, that's, that grassland is going to help still reflect that sun away and help keep that area cooler and help cool down the planet by reflecting that energy back into space. The last point that the uh, park uses um, to confirm that it potentially would help climate change is the methane emissions reductions that would come from it. Currently at the moment, it is a very moist, it's a very wet environment, the Arctic. It's, it, obviously there's not rain as much rainfall, but it is very wet from obviously the snow, the freezing, and it doesn't really dry out. Now it is their belief that with the um, with the more high the higher productive grasslands would in turn dry out the soil, which in turn would mean that the methane, the very strong greenhouse gases, would not be emitted as much. Um, so it would control that side of things a lot more. So the methane being released into the environment, which is a very strong greenhouse gas, would be massively reduced from that as well. Now, they are sort of the benefits which come down to the climate change. They do. There is an argument that they put out saying that actually the benefit um, for, um, for instance, to like the um, uh, local indigenous people could be beneficial as well by adding in this uh, higher diversity, this. Uh, this greater diversity of ecosystem because it would add in more animals back into the area which they could obviously hunt or live off of um, or work with and actually just have a lot more benefit rather than being effectively a, an icy desert it would have a lot more benefit there and so that sort of gets to sort of the benefits and I kind of want to stop this section of the podcast here because I realize this has been a very long part of a podcast and I think it would be good now to sort of have a look back a bit of sort of a roundup of what we've looked at during the podcast. I sort of think I'll give you my opinion of what I think on it, and hopefully you can have a little think about what your thoughts are on it as well. Do you like it? Do you not? Um, and yeah, let, let, let's let's go to our conclusion. So. We're coming to the end now, and I think it's time for a recap. So, we've had a look at Jurassic Park and actually how close um, uh, Pleistocene, Pleistocene? Sorry, Pleistocene Park actually is to it. We've had a look at the history of the park, we've had a look at what they aim to do, um, how that affects sort of climate change, and also whether they could even go as far as genetic engineering in terms of cloning a mammoth or clone, even just cloning any extinct animal and bringing it back to 
bringing it back to the world now. And I guess come to some sort of conclusion. I guess trying to work out sort of what am I trying to conclude from this? And this is probably something I should have figured out maybe at the beginning. But like, should should they do it or should they not do it? Now, saying should they do it or should they not, maybe it's a wrong wrong question considering they've been doing it now since 1988 um <clears throat> but maybe should they progress any further at the moment it is a effectively a, a national park of sorts it's a, it's a it's a wild reserve where no one else comes in or out other than researchers and the indigenous people to the area um and it's uh it's only using currently animals which would naturally potentially appear in that climate. Obviously, they've brought in animals with, from outside of that area, but they are animals that could live in that climate. And I guess it's should they continue any further. And on a separate note, if the ability to add a cloned mammoth or woolly rhino, for example becomes available should they do that ethically they have died out they've become extinct we probably shouldn't be messing around too much of that and bringing them back on a personal level it would be cool to see a mammoth or woolly rhino in like in real life but honestly most people don't see most animals in the world in person like i'm very lucky that i have been and seen rhinos i have seen giraffes and uh, and the big five in africa i am lucky that i have managed to do that but i i'm not taking away from that but if you're adding in those sort of animals such as mammoths and woolly rhinos which which are jobs that could be done by animals which are around today are you just doing it because you can and therefore, are you doing it a bit like Jurassic Park for then a tourist reason? Are you going to then open up the park so people can come and have a look and, and and look at them? Because those animals aren't going to be the animals that were around. They're not going to be raised by mammoths. It would have to be raised by its probably close ancestors with like an elephant. And that's not going to be necessarily how that offspring would have been brought up in the wild by maybe a, a, a mammoth 11, 12,000 years ago. That's um, that's how we are adapting the situation, so we can just look at a real-life mammoth alive nowadays. And so, personally, on the note of should we clone a mammoth, I'd probably say no, personally. But that is purely because I think it would end up turning into a tourist reason rather than actually research. I don't really see how, in the current situation, it would be used for anything other than publicity or anything like that. In terms of the park and it trying to resolve climate change and that, absolutely. I think it's fantastic the research that is being done. Whether there's obviously it's, it's going to be a resolve all, I don't think so. But then I think that's the case with most things. I don't think there is a one option is going to resolve all climate change issues we have nowadays. And I think if this can be a contributing factor which helps towards it, helps increase biodiversity in a world where, as us humans are rapidly destroying it, I think it would be good to see and see it increase. Um, as long as we don't impact on potentially the environments that are already there, as long as we don't destroy ecosystems to make place for a new ecosystem, that is again just us being... I'd say typical humans and um, uh, and basically deciding we want something else there instead. So yeah, it, I'm hoping this will be a good one for, for everyone to sort of think about and discuss um, and, and like think about to yourselves. But like, that's where I think I stand. In terms of the cloning and mammoths and that, no, I can't see it being used for anything other than publicity, anything like that, rather than science. Of course, if people want to email in and confirm that there are reasons, absolutely, please, because I want to be educated and that. So if I have got something wrong, please educate me, because I'll do a separate uh, episode on that in itself. And actually, this is meant to be the whole point in this podcast. It's meant to be 
a journey of me researching stuff which I potentially have no idea about but find quite interesting and just it's something for me to bring light to to other people and I want to encourage people to do the same as me and go and look at this stuff for yourselves um and then in terms of the actual park itself I would say um yeah keep going keep going trying to help with the climate uh change and that as long as you don't try and destroy the uh ecosystems necessarily that are already there if you destroy the ecosystems that are already there then again we're just wiping out something else to make way for something we prefer so i think that that is my sort of stance on this um yeah i hope you can come to come to your uh, uh not similar conclusion i don't want it at all but come to your own conclusion of what you think and go and have a little research of it So that was the first episode. Um, big thank you for everyone who listened in. Uh, plan is just to get one out a week. Um, I haven't chosen what day it's going to be released yet. Um, and the first couple will be released at the same time. So you have a little bit to listen to or a couple episodes to listen to um, all at once before you have to wait to the next one. Um, and yeah, the idea is I'm going to pick a new subject every week. Um, and then we'll go through that a little bit like how we did today. It will vary depending on the subject. If you have anything you want me to look into or research, please message me, send me an email, and I will uh, look into that, and that might even make an appearance in a future episode itself. Um, and yeah, I, I'm very new to this podcasting world. This is the first episode I've done, or the first podcast I've ever done. I've had a lot of prep up to this point, and... I eventually just had to take a bit of a plunge to do this first episode. So I really do hope you enjoyed it. Let me know what you liked, if you enjoyed it, um, if there's anything you think I could have done better. It is, it is a learning experience for me. And you never know, this this show may evolve into something else. It may pretty much stay as the same forever. Who knows? So again, big thank you for listening in. Um, this was episode one. Uh, welcome to... Uh, uh, Plasticine Park and uh, yeah hold on to your butts and see you next time